Hello, and welcome to the Storyteller's Mission with Zena Del Lowe, a podcast for artists and storytellers about changing the world for the better through story. Last week, we began looking at some examples in our society of stories that are being told from an anti-hero, cynical point of view. Now, you may be thinking, haven't we spent enough time on this subject? But we don't seem to be getting it right yet. I'm still seeing so much stuff where the people haven't thought through the implications of the kind of story they're telling. And so essentially what's happening in Christendom is that we're sort of being divided into two camps. In one camp, you've got the Christians that are writing material that doesn't really challenge people. It's banal. It's simplistic. It's following the evaluative criteria that I've talked about before, where it lacks sex, it lacks language, it lacks violence, and therefore it is, quote, good. And yet it might be propagating a lie just as much as one of these cynical stories is, because it is leaving out stuff that is necessary in order to tell the truth. So we have that camp of Christianity, the one that kind of keeps it simplistic and doesn't really think too much, that just doesn't allow their work to get very deep or profound. On the other hand, you have a group of Christians who end up sort of echoing what the world is saying because they haven't learned to think for themselves. They haven't learned to think through all of the necessary issues to make sure that they're not also propagating lies on the other side of it. In both camps, we're failing here. We're failing. And so I really believe that one of the number one things that we need to do in the Christian community is to learn to think through these issues on a much deeper, profound level. And that is why we're spending time going through this. Let's just recap some of the things that cynicism does to our culture. Which, by the way, pretty much any anti-hero character that's being created today promotes a cynical worldview. So maybe there was a time when the anti-hero character could be good, you know, Huck Finn, that sort of thing. But now these types of anti-heroes are just terribly dangerous because we haven't thought through all of the implications of the kind of character we've created. So we need to re-envision the anti-hero. Because remember, I'm not saying you throw out the anti-hero altogether. I'm saying we need to think more clearly about what we mean when we're creating an anti-hero. We cannot create an anti-hero that is an echo of what the world creates. We just can't. Ours has to be thought through much more carefully. Because what happens when people don't think through these issues? Well, they end up creating stories like what happened in the Heath Ledger version of Batman, where the moral of the story is that sometimes it's better for people to believe a lie than the truth. And why is that cynicism? Well, it's cynicism because it says that truth isn't the ultimate freedom. Like sometimes we have to deny the truth because that's better for people. We have to allow people to believe a lie. That's not just a cynical view of mankind, by the way. It's a demonic one. Because what is Satan called? The father of lies. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And of course, the Word of God says, You shall know the truth, 
and the truth will set you free. So if we believe that lies are better for people to believe than the truth because people can't be trusted, well, that is a cynical and immoral worldview, which again is what is currently operating in this world. That is what's being propagated all over the world today in many different forms, that the people cannot be trusted to take care of themselves, to think for themselves, to make choices for themselves. They must be forced, coerced, manipulated, pressured, brainwashed, indoctrinated, shamed, lied to. The people are stupid and therefore it's up to us, the elite, to teach them and to tell them what to do. And what have most of us done? Well, most of us have actually gone along with that. Sometimes because we're trying to be nice. Sometimes because as Christians, we have replaced the virtue of kindness with niceness. They are not the same. See, kindness sometimes entails bold truth-telling. See, we are confused in Christendom, and we have often replaced the virtue of kindness, which is biblical, with a virtue called niceness or politeness, which is not biblical. The fact is, even within Christendom, we have been so inundated with anti-heroic and cynical stories that it seeps into our own worldview. It is bleeding over. Which is why so many of us, even in the church, kind of shrug and are like, well, what does it really matter? We can't really change anything anyway. Meh, it just doesn't matter that much and there's nothing I can do about it. What happens when cynicism becomes the predominant worldview of a society? We stop seeing acts of selflessness. Why would anybody do anything self-sacrificial for somebody else's benefit in a cynical society? What good is it? What difference does it make? Cynicism is the unmaking of culture. Cynicism is the undoing of society. And it is the destroyer of heroes. So again, what does this mean? Well, on a practical level, it means that we have to think more clearly about the kinds of characters we're creating. We have to think. We can no longer take for granted things that we think we know about art or about story. We have to think. We have to re-examine our presuppositions to see what are we actually saying with this? What are you saying with your story? So I want to look at a few more case studies or mistakes that people have made, even within our own community, to see how it has bled over and what it looks like when that happens in our own work. And I'm going to start with one of the stories presented to me this summer when I was mentoring for the Act One Writing for Hollywood program. My students were supposed to develop a story over the course of the summer program, and they were pitching their story ideas to me for approval. And one of the students pitched a potentially interesting psychological thriller about six friends who were all being investigated as a serial killer. All six of them were suspects because they had all been in the area where recent victims turned up or had last contact with one or more of the victims right before they were killed. And so as the story unfolds, one by one, the group starts thinning out 
until we're down to only three characters left at the end. And of course, it's a mystery thriller. So the question is, which one of the three friends that are left is the serial killer? And will that character be caught and brought to justice and blah, blah, blah. All right. So one of the first major problems with this story was that none of the six characters were likable. All of the characters that the author introduced were pretty horrible and selfish people. There was nothing noble about any of them. So from the outset, we, the audience, had no one to invest in. Why should we even care? Now, if you've listened to one of my former podcast episodes about keynotes of godly storytelling, one of the things we talk about is not wanting things to be voyeuristic. We want to encourage interaction and connection, empathy, empathy, empathy. But in a story like this, we're encouraged to be passive participants just watching things happen to these characters without any kind of emotional investment. So right there, we are surely failing in our duties. But furthermore, most audiences, whether you look at that moral implication or not, most people just don't want to be invested in a story where they can't care about one of the characters. This is why there are certain stories that I just could never get into. And some people could, like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Some people thought that show was terrific. But all I saw were these horrible, hateful people where not one of them was sympathetic. Not one of them was noble. So how could I invest in any of their journeys? Now, the good news is that the author heard that and he went back and fixed it so that there was one sort of semi-noble character. Everybody else stayed horrible. But there was one gal who was at least decent and she became the main character because that was another one of his problems in the first rendition was that it was an ensemble piece And as is often the case when writers tackle those types of stories with multiple characters, there was no one primary character or clear protagonist who was driving the action of the story. So everything was just happening to the characters. They were all passive. No one had a clear objective or goal. It became a very confusing plot without any real direction simply because there was no main central character who had an objective to pursue. Now, that's a basic story problem that isn't necessarily related to anti-heroes or a cynical moral worldview. Again, that was a problem, but not necessarily because of the moral implications. Nevertheless, he fixed that. And at the end of the story, what happens is this girl, I believe her name was Abigail, goes to the bad guy's house after almost everybody else is dead, not because she's on to him, Not because she has any idea of confronting him or anything like that, but rather just to commiserate. So she's stupid, which is, again, part of the problem. That is a cynical perspective. Remember, your main character, if she's a protagonist, he or she, they should be a hero in the making, which means they should be more clever. They shouldn't be so stupid because, you know what, we don't care about characters that are so stupid and they miss all the clues and they can't put anything together. So we hate them. And so now good looks bad and all those things. But anyway, she's stupid. So she goes to the guy's house not having a clue that he's actually the bad guy. And then while she's there, she does figure out, oh, he's bad. Um, But not before she's killed. She's killed. Um, And so then after the guy kills her, 
And by the way, he apparently had a crush on her the whole time and was romantically interested in her. But here he goes and kills her. And right afterwards, he does this happy dance, which was established early on in the story. So la, 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 la. Now he's dancing. He's so happy because he gets to dance the happy dance after he kills. He's got a little tune that goes with it. And then right after that, he gets a call from the job that he's been waiting to hear back from. He got the big promotion. He was after all along. And he smiles huge. And guess what? That's the end of the story. So in other words, he totally gets away with it. And he gets rewarded by the universe. Okay. So when the guy pitched this story, all I could think was, okay, how do I break it to him that this is not a Christian worldview? Now, here's the thing, and this is the most important part here. The truth of the matter is there are only a couple of things that would need to happen in order to make this consistent with a Christian worldview. See, you might think that I'm suggesting a radical rewrite. I am not. He could still have the girl lose in the end and get killed. He could still even have the guy do a weird little happy dance and he could even get the job. But there has to be something else that happens in order for this to be, quote, a Christian worldview. And these are the kinds of things we have to think through. So in order to help you understand that, let's talk briefly about Flannery. O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. And you're going to have to forgive me. I haven't read this for years. But if my memory is correct, what happens is at the very beginning of the story, you've got an older woman who is a Pharisee in essence. She's a legalist. She's a self-righteous Christian who looks down her nose at everyone and everything and thinks she's better than everybody else. She is not a person who embodies the Christian virtues that we ought to be manifesting in our daily lives. She is not gracious, kind, loving, humble, all of those things. She is a very pharisaical type of character. Now, somehow in this world, some bad guys escape from prison. I believe there's three of them, but one of them is a killer, a stone cold killer. And he kills a couple of people, but he ends up with this older lady and He doesn't kill her right away, so they spend some time together while the bad guys are trying to enact their plan. And over the course of the telling, what happens is the old woman's perspective changes. In fact, by the end of the story, she actually loves him. She sees him through Christ's eyes. She is redeemed. She is absolutely redeemed from her lack of belief. Now she's full of love. By the end of the story, she sees him through Christ's eyes. So she's redeemed. Now she is still killed by the bad guy in the end. Nevertheless, by the time she's killed, she has completely changed and she's repented of her former opinions and point of view through her actions And now when he kills her, even though she loses, she wins because there's something more important than her life. She gets to go to heaven. She's redeemed. Now, conversely, the bad guy who's never shown any sort of remorse for any of his horrible actions, anybody that he's killed, when he kills her at the end, something happens to him. He can no longer take pleasure in it. He takes no joy from that killing. 
In fact, it kind of hurts him to do it. Now he does it, but it's not the same. The pleasure is taken away from him because the godliness of her, the Holy Spirit that was in her, it affects him, right? It affects him. And he actually gets to see something pure and beautiful. And as a result of that sort of contact, it changes him. Now he's still bad and he's unredeemed, but he isn't unchanged. He is impacted by it. Okay, so let's go back to this kid's story. All that would have had to happen in his story. See, the way he allowed it to unfold shows us that there were no consequences to sinful actions. And I don't believe that. That is why it violates a Christian worldview. Because as Christians, we believe that sin has an impact Now, yes, it has an impact generally, right? We live in a fallen world, so bad things happen. But it has an impact personally. We believe that you cannot be actively engaged in sin and not be impacted by that on a spiritual level. So our goal then is to show that in some way. And again, it doesn't have to be a radical revision. All that would have had to happen is for him to, when he kills her, whereas in the past he got to do the happy dance, this was somebody he supposedly liked, that he had a romantic interest in. So why not have it be that when he kills her, just like in Flannery O'Connor's piece, he can take no joy in it. So maybe he even tries to do the happy dance. Maybe he tries to do it, but it just isn't the same. It just isn't the same. It costs him something to engage in his regular habits of sin. It hurts him on some level. And especially if she's not stupid, she's good. That there's something good about her by the end that is beautiful so that when she loses, she still wins. Even if he kills her, it's okay because she is virtuous and noble and she remains true to her Christian values. Even though she never has to talk about Christian values. But she's able to still love him all the way through the end. Or she's able to, while dying, realize that he may take her life, but he can't take her soul. Or he can't take whatever. Whatever it is that she needs to value at that point, he can't take that from her. She gets to hold on to it because she's a good human being who's been redeemed. That had to happen. And she can't just be a stupid idiot or we hate her. She's got to have a virtue that is pure and good. And it's that virtue that then impacts the bad guy and robs him of the pleasure of his sin. And isn't that the truth, by the way? Have you ever had friends that like to do a particular thing that maybe is not godly? Say they like to go out and get drunk and they want you to come out and get drunk with them, and you don't, and they don't want you around because your being there robs them of the pleasure of their sin because you represent God. Even if you've never judged them, even if you've never said a word about it, it's their own conviction. It's the Holy Spirit at work in them, but you represent that to them. You rob them of the joy of their sin. In fact, that's true no matter what the sin is. If there is one guy 
who stands up and says, no, I'm not going to do that. That's not right. All the rest of the people, that's why peer pressure happens. Oh, come on, man. Everybody's doing it. They want you to do it because you're robbing them of the joy of their sin. And all it takes is one person to not give in and it ruins it all. It ruins it all. They can no longer revel in it like they want to. And usually, depending on the level of sin, they want to kill you. They either will get rid of you, they will cut you out, or if it's a violent enough group, they may kill you. Who knows? I don't know what group you run with. But nevertheless, the point is, anybody who stands up for what is good and right and true in a pure way bugs anybody who wants to be in sin. This is why Serpico was such a powerful movie. What was the tagline? There is nothing more dangerous than an honest cop. Because an honest cop makes everybody else mad because they have to look at their own sin. So again, coming back to this, the gal who is the main character in his story needed to have something like that, that was good and holy and right, so that the guy couldn't just revel in his sin. He could still have all the same actions, but they would affect him a little differently. So then when he gets the phone call, he could still get the phone call and still get the promotion. It's just that it's a hollow victory. It's like, yay, I got the promotion. It means nothing to him now. The girl that he liked is dead. He got away with it, but there's no joy in it. All of a sudden, even though all of the actual events are the same, it is what those events mean that changes whether or not it's a cynical or a Christian worldview. Do you see this? And this is why it is so essential for us to become better thinkers. Okay, so that is an example of somebody from the Christian community ending up regurgitating a lot of the messages that are already out in the world because we need to learn to think more clearly about the content that we're creating and how the small nuances actually make a difference. Having said that, if you have a story that you're working on right now that you would like help with in terms of evaluating what you're actually saying with your story, I would love to be of service. Check out the website, www.thestorytellersmission.com, and I would just love to help you with this. It's something I'm very passionate about and something you should be passionate about too. Thank you for joining me today on The Storyteller's Mission with Zena Dello. May you go forth inspired to change the world for the better through story.